Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. It was when you came on your official visit, they played like the old school movie with the four horsemen and uh, the old school Notre Dame, and you got the... And there's a... Now that's a follow-up question, (laughs) Eric Hansen. That's a heck of a follow-up question right there. If you can be physical, and if you can take the breath out of somebody by hitting them, man, it don't matter how many yards or or what the offense is or what the schemes are, that'll always be the same. But I still think there's a place for Notre Dame and the ideals of Notre Dame football in the wide, broad scope of the sport right now. Uh, Eric, I'm hoping I don't run into you in South Bend because you'll probably cost me around a drink. From the South Bend Tribune and ND Insider, this is the Pot of Gold Podcast with Tyler James and Eric Hansen. Welcome, everybody, to another edition of Pot of Gold and ND Insider Podcast. I'm Tyler James, and I'm joined once again by the one and only Eric Hansen. Together we cover Notre Dame football for Indy Insider and the South Bend Tribune. College football season is officially upon us with week zero games being played this weekend and Notre Dame taking the stage next weekend at Florida State. Before we dive into previewing that matchup next week, we wanted to bring Dennis Dodd of CBS Sports on the podcast to give us some national perspective. Dennis, thanks for joining us. Always glad, you guys. Thanks for having me on. (laughs) Dennis, there have been a lot of changes across college football this offseason. Maybe one of the bigger changing offseasons in, in college football history from NIL to one-time transfer rules, proposed 12-team playoff, Texas and Oklahoma joining the SEC, um, an alliance being formed. Uh, which one of those things do you think will transform the college football landscape the most? Oh, God, that's like a Sophie's choice. Um, <laughs> they're all kind of... They're all kind of interrelated now, like realignment and NCA governance and Texas, Oklahoma and the transfer portal. It's all in some way sort of, uh, you know, related to each other. There's a little piece that's related to each other. But, uh, you know, I think clearly two things, the Austin decision um, in March, I think it was March 28th or 29th, really opened the doors for this and may have even caused the Texas Oklahoma thing to, to happen where basically anything goes in NIL. Um, you know, another one is, you know, the playoff, which is coming and I think it'll be 12, but I think it'll be a while. Um, and, and then, and then the realignment, wherever that stops, I do think with, uh, with the Alliance that was formed this week, I, I do think that, alignment at the top is ended for now. Now that's, I'm not talking about the big 12 and American and some of those, but I think, I think they are going to stand down now. Um, You know, what is now a power four, basically. Well, Dennis, what do you think is going to happen? Do you think the American and the big 12 will kind of either join or cannibalize each other? Or what, what do you think will happen there? Yeah, I do think, eventually that'll happen. One will swallow the other and the remains of either league will just kind of go their separate ways. Um, I, I'm not sure. I, th- I think the big 12, I know the big 12 has leverage right now because 
they've got a contract for four more years that pays them $37 million. So they've got a good starting point from, from whence to fall because Texas, Oklahoma leaving decreased the value of the league and media rights by at least 50%. And some people think it's more than like 75%. So they've got a number that they, you know, if it ends up being, let's say 15 million for whatever the big 12 is per team, well, that's way more than, than the, the American makes. Um, so that's might be why they have uh, the leverage. Now, what would hurt is if they start to do this too soon, I think Texas and Oklahoma could say, hey, wait a minute, this isn't the conference we signed up for and use that as some sort of excuse to get out early because I think the, the eight remaining big 12s really, really want access to that money that they're, they're promised. Dennis, I'm curious, do you think the 12-team playoff that was proposed is in jeopardy in any way right now? I think the timing of it is in jeopardy. I, I think philosophically, I don't know this, I don't have any proof, but I think <laughs> philosophically they'll all come back around to a 12-team playoff is the best thing to do because the value of it is is astronom- could be astronomical. Um, but uh, it, it's going to be slowed down. You saw Gordon Gee's comment this week where he said it's, it's dead in the water. I, it, it's not dead in the water, um, but you've got significant people like Gene Smith at Ohio State saying we have to we have to slow down. And this game is a direct result of the SEC's action with Texas and Oklahoma because no one saw it coming. No one knew about it, um, apparently, and none of the power <laughs> brokers knew about it. And so when it happened, the perception, and I hope the SEC understands this, they don't have to agree with, but the perception is the SEC was going to take over and grab six of those spots eventually. So they all have to get in a room, and they will uh, September 28th in Dallas when they all next meet to talk about this. So I, I think it'll be pushed back. That and the fact that there's a growing um, sentiment to just play out the last five years of this playoff contract and then let it go to market to maximize the value. You know, when uh, E. Gordon Gee was the Ohio State president, <laughs> he once called a Ohio State Michigan game Ohio State's greatest victory in recent years, and it was a tie. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I, I'm not sure that I want to I want to follow what he's saying, but I, I know he's an influence. He's a guy. he's a treasure. Gordon's he, is a, he is a treasure. Um, the NCAA kind of restructuring reform. Boy, I don't know where that's going. I mean, will we? I mean, will will that drastically change the way that that rules and violations are kept? Will we have vacated wins, unvacated? I mean, where do you think that's all headed? Yeah, I was reminded this week this, this, that this is just a look at the Constitution, which, by the way, runs 43 pages. I mean, that in itself, <laughs> the Constitution for the NCA runs 43 pages is going to be addressed. But the Constitution is just a 35,000-foot view of, of the association. The things, you know, things you're talking about, things I'm talking about, enforcement, academics, eligibility, I think that's a separate discussion. Okay. And this survey that went out Monday of this week uh, to, I think I counted 7,800 people in the NCAA, I don't know if they're even with that, that much diversity, I don't know if they're going to get that much of you know, solid response um, or, or focused response on the questions. Like one of the first questions is, 
what does the NCA do well and what does it not do well? Well, I could I could sit here for three hours and have that discussion. Um, I don't know where they go with the with the Constitution. It may be more, you know, uh, Mark Emmert called for a decentralization, more conference involvement. I think we're way far away from that. I think that's a separate discussion, and that plays in, you know, to some to what the SEC did. People were afraid. Well, the, if the conferences are going to take over, what's to keep the SEC from having thirty-five scholarships and everybody else have twenty-five? But that again, I think, is a separate discussion. I think something they could do in the future, but I don't think we'll see much out of this constitutional convention. You know, I can I can name 10, 10 NCA enforcement cases that have lasted longer than this rewriting of the Constitution. They're going to do in three months what, you know, Baylor took five years to decide their case. Dennis, do you think there's any way that Texas and Oklahoma moving to the SEC can backfire on them and and end up not being the right decision? The the unwritten story and the under-discussed story is if this is not the place to go to get better at football, it's, it's, you know, the better to get paid You'll have access to more and better recruits, I would suspect. But I, I would submit that Oklahoma certainly isn't going to win six straight conference titles in the SEC. And Texas has been unranked five of the last 10 years. This doesn't make it more possible. Um, it's gonna the same issues will apply. Texas has to get better at football um, and playing these teams, playing a tougher schedule. No, everybody admits that's going to be the case. It's the on the field thing that I think is really fascinating to me. Now, Oklahoma, look, is is very, very good. But when they walk into that first meeting of ADs or whatever they are, they might be the, at best, third best program in that room in, t- in terms of throwing your weight around. You got Alabama, LSU, Auburn, Florida, Georgia. Oklahoma doesn't walk in there starting making demands. And Texas, you go over, you go sit at the kitty table, Texas. You know? <laughs> You get, you're dressed real nice. You got a great brand, but you got to wait your turn. The uh, whenever these kind of issues come up, there's always either a real or a fake Notre Dame angle to them. And with the alliance, it seems like Notre Dame is protected and so forth. But but you read a lot of people that want Notre Dame not to be independent anymore. And from a national perspective, why is that? Do they feel like Notre Dame is somehow kind of cheating the system? By being independent, they I think one thing they see is the lack, you know, they don't have to put it on the line in a conference championship game. Gotcha. Except last year. Yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> it, worked, it worked out pretty good regardless. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, they can they can make their own schedule, which, you know, pretty much is the case for everybody now. When you got a 16 team league, you know, you're gonna go in and out and and play everybody in the league. They've got you know that I, I call it being half pregnant with the ACC, playing a, a schedule but not a full schedule. But I, I think a lot of it is is envy. You know, I, I don't think Notre. If you watch those teams, two of the last three years, they weren't cutting corners getting to the playoffs. They deserved it. Now it's another discussion. You know, getting boat raced in those playoff games, but they certainly deserve to be in there. Um, so it, it it's the same. It goes back you know, decades, uh, the jealousy about Notre Dame. Dennis, switching over a little bit to this upcoming season in Notre Dame, I'm curious your thoughts on who, which opponent Notre Dame has on its schedule should they be most concerned about, Wisconsin, Cincinnati, USC, or North Carolina? 
Yeah, I think I think Wisconsin just because it's a neutral site game is really fascinating being played in Chicago. Obviously, a, a Notre Dame stronghold, but um, they are. You know, I think many people make a big deal about this. They are going to be passing more. This isn't your typical. Um, three yards in a cloud of dust. They don't have a difference maker at tailback. Jalen Berger is supposed to be that guy, but I don't think he is. But talking to uh, Graham Mertz and his family who are right over my shoulder in the next subdivision here in Kansas, um, Graham Mertz told me that they he thinks they're going to pass a lot more because Paul Christ is like this mad scientist who can't wait to get his fingers on the system as uh, the new quarterback's coach. He loves it. I, I never thought of Paul Chris as this, you know, um, mad genius offensively, but I, I think they're going to be passing a lot more and going downfield a lot more, which is, which kind of is, you know, the, if Alabama did it, then, you know, wow. Then Wisconsin's doing it. Not to say they won't return to the running game someday, but I, I think that Wisconsin provides, uh, I guess the biggest challenge for that because you don't know necessarily what team you're going to see, at least offensively. Dennis, I got a chance to see Jack Cohn, I think, in one game. It was a Michigan game, and he actually was pretty impressive in the game that I saw. I think Taylor had to come out of the game for a little bit for an injury, and he was pretty solid when Taylor was out. My question to you is, of what you've seen of him, do you think he could be as good or better than A, Graham Mertz, yeah. B, Ian Book, or C, Phil Jakovic? Yeah, that's a that's a great question because he's he's a you know losing Ian Book, he he was a, a fine addition. You know that's why for a lot of people the the portal is there, and he's accomplished. He's made I think correct me if I'm wrong. I think 18 starts, uh, maybe more than that, led Wisconsin to the Rose Bowl in uh, in 19. Um, and you know, had, had he not been injured last August, his foot or toe, you know, may still be at Wisconsin starting, you know, Graham Mertz may have not unseated him, but they, they were all in with Graham Mertz after that happened. So, you know, is he, I, I think he's a, a capable replacement c- considering, you know, what they lost. And you, you talked about, um, Jerkovic and Graham Mertz. I, I, I don't know that yet. Um, and Ian Book was pretty darn good because he was because of his leadership capabilities, because he was a very effective dual threat guy. Um, I, I know Jack Cohn isn't isn't a dual threat. Um, if he is, he's going to get his head knocked off mm-hmm. or if he tries. But that doesn't make him, you know, bad. It's just a ph- uh, offensive philosophy you're going to have to adhere to. But no, I, I, I just you know, I think they're in very good shape with an accomplished starting quarterback in the Big Ten now leading them. Uh, on the opposite side of the football, Marcus Freeman is the big defensive addition as the new coordinator. I'm curious, what your, what are your thoughts on the impact that he will make on Notre Dame's defense? And then how long do you think it is until he becomes a head coach somewhere? Yeah, pretty quick, considering, you know, he, he's come up the ladder like this. Um, no, I, I think it's I think it's one of the best, one of the biggest stories of the offseason that, you know, you took the best. Well, one of the best defensive coordinators in the country. Forget about group of five. You know, look what he did at Cincinnati. And now he has uh, ability to get the resources and talent at Notre Dame after Clark Lee, um, you know, had used 
his his accomplishments to get the the Vanderbilt job. I, I just think it it's steady as she goes. Um, I I don't know much. You guys know more about what he runs than I do. Um, I did a I did a story in the off season about how the four two five has kind of become the go to for everybody because there's so many receivers on the field. You have to start every game almost in nickel or more. So I, I suppose he's, you know, I suppose he's, he's vested in that. So no, I, I think he's very good. It's a great get for Notre Dame. Dennis, uh, you know, there's always times I get a crush on an, a football crush, not a romantic crush <laughs> on a Notre Dame football player. And, and the guy that I have a crush on is probably a guy you haven't even seen play is Kevin Austin. He was hurt last year, suspended the year before, but when it's stunning how good he is, but I'm curious from a distance, is there a Notre Dame football player that you have a football crush on? You say, wow, this guy is really, really good. I like Kyron Williams just because he's a homeboy from uh, uh-huh. <laughs> Florissant, Missouri. And that's where I grew up. And I think it, I correct me if I'm wrong. I think it was McBride high school. Um, I think, uh, Oh no, it wasn't. It was one of the, I'm sorry. It was one of the, I think one of the Catholic schools. Yeah. Right. Viani. Yeah. Viani. Yeah. Oh yeah. Who was, uh, who was my, I'm so old that my high school doesn't <laughs> exist anymore. Viani <laughs> was one of our rivals in the old Catholic athletic league. So uh, anyway, but no, I, I like Kyron Williams just because of his, his, what he produces for his size. I think it'll be really interesting with, with some questions about, the offensive line this year, how he does, but I think he'll go to the next level um, and just kind of really followed him because he was, he was from my hometown. Dennis, this may be a little bit of inside baseball, but Notre Dame didn't have a traditional media day like it has in the past pre COVID this year. Um, So we haven't seen as many national writers on campus in the preseason as we have in the past. Do you think that's something that Notre Dame needs to have um, since it's not part of the sort of the conference media day circuit, or you think that's sort of like an antiquated part of the past and you can sort of get that access whenever you need it? No, I, I would, I would definitely advocate for it. Uh, back in the day, I used to go every year to, uh, to Notre Dame um, and times have changed and that it's not up to me, but um, <laughs> no, I, I think eight of the 10 con- FBS conferences had media days in person. And look, th- there are varying uh, levels of access at these conferences, but they're conferences. When you have a media day for a school, for a national brand like Notre Dame, you can get a lot done. So yeah, I, being, being selfish as a media member, I would, yes, absolutely want that. Dennis, the last time we were in Tallahassee was 2014 and it was a matchup of two top five teams <laughs> and Florida state does not look like the same team and the same program that we saw in 2014. Jimbo leaves but what do you feel like the state of the program is are they finally kind of getting all that turbulence behind them or or are they still kind of engaged in that yeah they're stabilized under Mike Norvell I think that's the best way to put it nobody's you know saying they're going to be in the top four like they were you know under Bobby Bowden for all those years Uh, I think it's really interesting to see how Milton McKenzie turns out Uh, one of the great stories in in sports not not just in football him coming back from that devastating leg and knee injury and and i hope i hope he survives you know that that first hit because that's going to be the one everybody goes oh my gosh 
having done stories on him, I know his mother's concerned about that. Um, but, you know, they have a chance with a quarterback, uh, but there are deficiencies all over the field. I know, God, even last year they were having problems with their offensive line. Yeah. And that supposedly is, is short up. It can't be any worse. Um, it, it got really bad under Willie Taggart. So, yeah, that's one where, you know, I, I think Notre Dame, I haven't even looked, but they should be a, a double-digit um, favorite. 2014, was that that famous game uh, with the uh, um, contact in the end zone? Yeah, pass interference. Pass interference. Yep, oh, Corey Robinson. Uh, the a pick play or argument over a pick play or something. Yeah, yeah. including Will Fuller. Yeah. Oh, my, I, rem- that, I remember that. Um, and it happened – that's how Clemson won their first championship over Alabama and Tampa. It was the same thing. Same thing. And Hunter Renfro and I got I called people. I called officials like right after. Go, was that a, was that a pick or no pick? Absolutely not a pick. Absolutely a pick. So, my I guess my point at the end of the day was Clemson had practiced pretty well. <laughs> Dennis, last question for me. Brian Kelly is going to pass Newt Rockney for career wins at Notre Dame, which seems, I think, sacrilege to some Notre Dame fans. Even I'm curious from the national perspective, what what is what does that mean for people that sort of are trying to understand Brian Kelly's uh, impact at Notre Dame? Yeah, I, I that that has hit me. Um, I don't you know, I think you have to put him right now in in the top five active coaches in college football. I don't want to say he's gotten there quietly, but, but the criticism sometimes is so loud at Notre Dame when, when guys don't succeed that this has gone, you know, come over time. The excellence has come over time and the consistency to the point that I think in, I think in two seasons or maybe one season, he'll be the longest standing coach at Notre Dame. And then obvious have the wins too. I went out to, um, It'll also be the oldest come October. The oldest. Be the first one to be 60 years old on the sideline at Notre Dame history. Yeah. So that, look, that's, I th- I don't think you'd say enough about that um, for what Brian has done. It's like he, there's only, he's not going anywhere else. He He's going to go to the NFL or he's going to retire. I mean, that's, that's his future. You know, he's going to retire at Notre Dame. You don't, you don't do that at Notre Dame and move up to, you know, what, I don't know, Ohio state or Oklahoma. I, I, I don't think he does that. I actually went out to um, March 31st was the 90th anniversary of the crash. And I went, went back out to uh, Cottonwood falls, Kansas, and particularly bizarre where the plane went down. I had done the story 20 years ago and just revisited. Um, and some of the same people are still there. They gather every five years, um, uh, Newt's uh, grandsons, I think it's grandsons, uh, still go out there. And there's a Newt Rockney Museum in Cottonwood Falls. It's fascinating how they built, you know, kept the memory alive. Uh, and I went by by memory. I drove ten miles out from that city to the place I thought where I could get to the memorial. And it's an obelisk that stands in a, f- a fifteen hundred acre cattle ranch. And took out on my own in a really warm March day. And like I had a vague map from one of the people in the museums, looked over my shoulder and I had passed it up by a mile. And there was this little dot on the horizon and I went back a mile and that's why I went um, to get a picture for the story. And it worked out 
But I just, I just felt so happy and so accomplished that I had done that uh, <laughs> 20 years apart. And the other part is that the people who own the land now have, have it's trespassing. It's off limits. You can't go on there. So I, uh, I guess I'm bragging that I uh, trespassed to get a picture of the <laughs> memorial. <laughs> Last one for me is what's your expectation of how Notre Dame will end up? Do you think they can make a run for the playoff? Do you think they're a New Year's Six team or something with a crazy sponsor bowl in front of it? Yeah, I think they're definitely a New Year's Six bowl team. Um, you know, I, looking at this schedule, all their toughest games are at home or at neutral sites. Um, you know, I, I, maybe at Stanford at the end, Virginia is not going to be a challenge. Virginia tech, I don't think is, um, is there, um, you know, Justin Fuente may be fired this year. So, uh, and I got, I just told you what I thought about Florida state. So I, you know, the biggest game is Wisconsin. They get by that. There's a chance they could go undefeated and then they'd have to be considered for the top four because there's going to be a, an elimination game of sorts in that first game, Clemson, Georgia especially if Georgia loses, they've got more to lose because of their schedule strength. They can't afford to lose again. Uh, Clemson, I think, can afford to lose because they, they would probably win the rest of their games, but this is the best Oklahoma team Lincoln Riley's had. I don't have to tell you about Alabama. People are talking about that defense like it's the best Nick Saban has had, at least in recent years. Um, who am I missing? Uh, Ryan Day hasn't lost a regular season game yet. So I definitely think Notre Dame can stick itself in that conversation. Well, all right, Dennis, that's all we have for you. We really appreciate you joining us once again and, and always appreciate you uh, sharing your insight with us. All right, guys, thanks so much. All right, now it's time for Place Your Bets. How much you want to make a bet I can throw a football over the mountains? This is our segment dedicated to the degenerates. Let's make one last round of season-long predictions. Eric, first one I have for us is over under 2,700 team rushing yards for Notre Dame. Well under Kelly was that 2017 high water market with anybody in the modern era was the 2017 team with 3,503. And then you look at the other Kelly teams and some of them are kind of close to that, but nobody gets over the 2,700 mark, the 2015-99. You know, I try to compare it a little bit to the 2012 and 2013 teams and it's a 2013 team with Tommy Reese running the ball was 1963. I just don't think Jack Cohn is going to have a lot of rushing yards. I don't think he's going to be in the negatives like some people do. So I'm going to go under. Yeah, I, I really want to take the over because of how good I think Kyron Williams and Chris Tyree will be. Um, but I don't know that I can get myself to, to do that. Uh, like you mentioned, that 2015 team was one yard short of 2,700, and that included 1,000 yards from ProSize, over 800 yards from Josh Adams, and over 500 yards from Deshaun Kaiser. So, um, obviously, I, I, don't, I don't know that they would be – Williams and Tyree would be as balanced as 1,000 and 800 like that, but certainly I don't think Jack Cohn is going to get towards close to 500 yards rushing. Um, so Some I, of the balance to that year was because ProSize was hurt sometimes. Right, right. Um so I just think that I would imagine Kyron has more than ProSize had that year, but I'm not, I'm not sure if Tyree gets up there. So uh, probably making a short answer longer than it needed to be, I, I will take the under. Uh, next one I have for us is, will Notre Dame finish in the top 20 of scoring defense? 
Well, they've been in the top 15 the past three years under Clark Lee, and that's the first time Notre Dame's done that in 50 years. Um, you know, I the scheme. I think it's a good fit. I'd feel a little bit better if Maris Leofau was starting the season on the field. Um, but I think they are going to be a top 20 scoring defense, even though they play some really good quarterbacks and really good scoring offenses potentially. Yeah, I think it's going to be very close because of that. I'm a little nervous given the stretch of good offenses in the middle of the season with Cincinnati, USC, and North Carolina um, in October. Um, but but I'll say yes, that they'll get just inside the top 20. Um, next one I have is over under four and a half players with 30-plus receptions. I'm going a big no there. I, I just don't think it'll be balanced enough or there will be enough. I mean, they – I. I couldn't find a year where they did that. Um, now, maybe they're, maybe I didn't dig deep enough. You know, I think Michael Mayer is going to have a bunch. Kevin Austin's going to have a bunch. Probably Kyron Williams will get over that 30. And then I think he's in the teens. I, I just I don't think they're going to have five people get 30-plus. Yeah, I mean, I'm going to go with yes, and I think part of that's because I think, like, Austin Mayer and Williams are sort of guaranteed that. And I just think that um, there's, a, there's a good chance that Braden Lindsay and Avery Davis both reach that 30-plus mark. I, I, you are right in that they haven't had that happen in Kelly's tenure. There have been four a few times, 2011, 2012, and 2015. Um, and I don't know that you necessarily think of at least the 2012 offense is like, okay, that, that offense was – um, stacked with receivers and they had good targets certainly, but um, I think that, I think this is seems possible. And I think someone like Jack Cohn, who's experienced um, and even though he doesn't have a lot of experience with these players, I think he will be more willing to maybe spread the ball out than sort of favor one guy, because I think he's confident in his ability to do that. Next one I have for us is will Notre Dame return a punt or kick for a touchdown? And that includes block punts and field goals. I say, yes, I think either Chris Tyree is going to return a kickoff for a touchdown or they will get a block punt for a touchdown. Yeah, I'm going to go. Yes, as well. Um, Although the returns of the traditional variety and kickoffs and punts may uh, not produce that. And they haven't produced that as of late, but I think that they have a, a decent chance of doing it in these those routes, and obviously they've been able to block punts for touchdowns in recent years. So I think um, because of that, I, I'm going to go with yes. Next one I have is over under five and a half home wins for Notre Dame. Okay, so they play seven home games. They've got this big, long home winning streak. So they would have to lose two games at home. I have them going either 11 and one, or 10 and two, you would figure if they're going to lose two, Wisconsin and Chicago would be one of them. So that only leaves one home game to lose. So I am going over the five and a half number. I say they will have at least six home wins. I I am going to go over as well. I'm not as confident in that. I'm not partially. Be, I think North Carolina is the, the, the game that I'm the most worried about them losing at home. Um, and I, I don't think I it's impossible. I don't think it's impossible to see them losing against Cincinnati or USC either. So um, I think there's 
it seems kind of strange to predict that there would be two losses at home when they haven't lost at home in such a long time, but they're playing some pretty good opponents at home this year. Um, but even then, I, I'm, I'm still going to chicken out and, and say over um, and, and say that they'll only lose one, one home game. All right, now it's time for questions. Just tell me when you guys – are we done with USC? Everybody's done. You guys are kidding me. That's all you want to talk about. All right, let's go. You can submit questions to us on Twitter before each podcast. I'm at TJamesNDI and Eric's at EHansonNDI. First one I have for us, Eric, is from Marie Biafore at Biafore underscore Marie. With fall camp now concluded, what was the biggest surprise on both offense and defense and why? And what is your biggest concern on both offense and defense? Well, I'll give you um, two surprise players that are not starters and two that are more prominent. I thought Michael Carmody being the third tackle, you know, the first tackle off the bench into a game surprised me. I thought at the very least that would be probably Tosh Bay. Um, and then Keanu Kia maybe having a role as a Viper end in some situations and looking pretty good in the practice we saw, that shocked me because he's very undersized. He's even undersized kind of for a linebacker at 217. Uh, but he looked good, and he knew what he was doing out there. More prominent players, that Joe Wilkins sustained a strong spring surprised me, and that J.D. Bertrand is really in the thick of playing time even though he's always been fundamentally sound, you know, that him kind of rising to the occasion surprised me. As far as concerns, evolution of the offensive line by the time they play those tough defensive fronts of Wisconsin and Cincinnati, and I would say still defensive back depth. They cannot afford to lose Kyle Hamilton. They really can't afford to lose either of their starting cornerbacks. Cornerbacks. Yeah, we have a lot of the same – same answers there, uh, Michael Carmody. We and we sort of d- discussed some of our surprises already earlier in camp. And Carmody was clearly a surprise on offense as being that third tackle, and JD Bertrand to me was a surprise that he was the number two will. And now with with Mar- Maris Leofile out, um, potentially being the number one will. Um, in terms of concern, the, I agree with you. The offensive line is a concern. I still think my greater concern is just the wide receivers being able to stay healthy. I mean, <laughs> we show up to practice. What was that? Tuesday's practice and Braden Lindsay's not dressed again. It's like, <laughs> you just, you just sort of, man, it's like you, you feel bad for the kid because you can't seem to stay healthy. This one didn't seem too serious. Brian Kelly said it was a shoulder strain and she, he should be good to go, but it's just like, I, it's something I'm going to need to see before I feel totally confident in it. So it's going to remain maybe my biggest concern with the offense. Um, as for the defensive concern, um, the cornerback specifically, I think, um, are, is concerning. I, I, I'm not sure, and I, I, I don't know if it's sort of when I, when I asked Brian Kelly the other day about how the cornerbacks have handled the demand of playing a lot more man coverage, he specifically answered it in regards to like the amount of the workload. And I was more meaning like how good are they against in man coverage? Because obviously the workload is important, but I think I'm not sure if they're good enough to play the man coverage that they want to do. And that's what I'm most interested to see if they are good enough. Um, and I don't know that we've got a great, good enough sense for that in preseason camp. So that's uh, that's still my biggest concern on the defense is whether or not the cornerbacks can play 
the man coverage that they're going to be asked to play. Next question we have is from Wayne Usteroff at W. Usteroff. Any update on Maris Leofile and what does the future look like at that position? The linebacker core is deep, but can it withstand, withstand this injury? Well, we know that um, Tyler actually had the story that um, Marist is has a low, I think it's an ankle, and that they believe that that's going to be something that's going to last more than one game, and Brian Kelly will fill us in on the details on Monday. Um, as far as the present and future of the position, you know, they had five linebackers kind of rotating through those two insights guy that didn't um that that just was kind of a fixture at middle linebacker my sense is that jd bertrand will start and that you could see shane simon uh play some in relief or as a tag team you may even see um you know depending on how long term this is bo bauer may play alongside of drew white you may see maybe Jack Kaiser move over and play that position and, and maybe they elevate Pryor and Paul Mawala. And maybe Prince Kali gets some the freshman that was the Buckkiss Award winner. I, I don't see that accelerating unless, again, this was going to be uh, more than half a season type injury. As far as the future, there's some really good athletes coming up. I mean, some of these guys will be gone next year and you'll see a younger group kind of that. But of the guys that are signed to play in 2022, I think Jalen Sneed and Josh Burnham can both play uh, inside at that weak, weak side linebacker spot um, that Marist is playing now. And so uh, there's some really good this is a position that's going to continue to upgrade. Yeah. Uh, we don't have a clear answer on the Maris timeline yet. I, it doesn't sound great, um, but we'll withhold sort of a verdict on that until we hear from Brian Kelly on Monday. Um, I think they can withstand this injury, but in my opinion, Maris Lee, if I was the most dynamic linebacker on the roster for this season uh, and maybe the most important one too. They gave him a lot of flexibility in, in the defense. He can move him around a lot. He can pass, ru pass rush probably better than any other linebackers. All. I think Bill Bauer is pretty good at that as well. Um, so I think it, what the end result will be less flexibility in those situations. Um, I do think that it may make sense to give some opportunities to Bo Bauer at that will linebacker position. Um, J.D. Bertrand is who I expect to be the starter. Shane Simon had a really quiet preseason yeah. camp. Now, maybe that was just the days that we saw practice, but I didn't see Shane Simon make, make much of an impact in the days that we were able to watch practice. So um, I, I don't think – I've always liked Shane Simon um, as, a, as a linebacker, but it hasn't necessarily matched up with his play. So I still think there's potential there. So I, I don't think they're going to be in a terrible position because of they're lo losing Marist, but – I just think I do think it pretty significantly changes a lot of the things that Marcus Freeman can do with the linebacker group. Next question is from Derek Gerber at Gerbs Irish 02. With such little to no experience behind Jack Cohn, how long of a leash will the coaching staff give him? 
unless he has a Dane Chris South Florida self-destruction performance, he'll get at least a full game no matter how poorly he plays. Guess that's the worst case scenario. Yeah, you know, and I, I think it's a certainly a legitimate question. It's not one I had really given any thought to because I guess if you're going to go through this whole process of trying to decide who your number one is, all of spring and into fall camp and all through summer, I think you have to trust that process more than pulling somebody in the middle of the first game. Uh, I think Dane, Chris, Tommy Reese thing was a little bit different in 2011, just because Brian was turning purple by them losing to South Florida. And I think there were signs in the 2011 preseason camp that Dane Christ was compromised, you know, still physically and, and maybe, you know, having two really serious leg injuries, maybe was compromised, you know, upstairs too. And, and had there not been a lightning delay, they wouldn't have made that change. Um, It gave Brian Kelly time to think about it. So I think he's playing the whole Florida state game. uh, And I don't expect there to be, be a need to kind of uh, manage the leash in a game like that. If, if there is, then Notre Dame is not going to be a New Year's Six team, uh, as I would expect them to at least be. So I, right. I, I just – I think you got to kind of trust the process you just went through. Yeah, I mean, if he throws three interceptions on the first three series and Notre Dame's down 21 nothing, maybe maybe he considers it. But I'm not sure that would be the best place to throw Drew Pine – uh, onto the field, on the road with that deficit. Um, so I, I think the 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 possibilities of Brian Kelly pulling Cone in the opener seem very slim to me. Um, Kelly's worst seasons have typically involved some indecision at quarterback, and yeah. I think he's aware of that. Um, so I, I think he wants to, to see what Jack Cone can do and has confidence that he can do what they need him to do. So I'm not sure that it's like, let's see what Jack Cohn can do in the opener and then make a decision after that. I think I think they're confident in what he can do for this offense and um, are hoping that they made the right decision. <laughs> uh, next question is from Chris Scheiber at Scheib43. Who will Jack Cohn be at the end of the year? And he gave us four different options. Tw- 2006 Brady Quinn, which was 62% completion, 3,426 yards, 37 touchdowns and seven interceptions. 2013, Tommy Reese, which is 54 percentage of completions, 3,257 yards, 27 touchdowns, and 13 interceptions. Ian Book in 2019, which was a 60% completion percentage, 3,034 yards, 34 touchdowns, and six interceptions. And then option D was 2016 to Sean Kaiser with a completion percentage of 59, 2,000. 925 yards, 26 touchdowns, and nine interceptions. Well, I answer this question both as an essay question as the multiple choice because I did not initially see the multiple choice. When I chose the multiple choice, (laughs) I chose C, which was the Ian Book 2019 season because uh, Jack Cohn's 2019 season was – very comparable to it, uh, a little bit better. And I think that's probably what we're going to see this year. When I answered it as an essay question, 
to me, who Jack Cohn is at the end of the season is the great mystery to me. <laughs> I do not have a great feel for that. And I think it's going to drive where Notre Dame ends up in December slash January. Um, I, my, my answer as I answer was the quarterback of an 11 and one or 10 and two team. All right. I, I went, I went with C as well. I think, I think, although I think he'll have a better completion percentage. Um, I think he'll probably will have a better completion percentage than any of the options that were listed with 62% being the highest. It's just sort of how college football is played at the highest level these days is the quarterback completion percentages are pretty high. Um, I'm not sure he'll have as many touchdown passes as Ian Book had that year with 34. Um, so those would be the slight tweaks off the 2019 Ian Book stat line that I would make. But I think that's the most likely outcome of those four that were thrown our way. I think he'll, he would have a better season than Deshaun Kaiser in 2016. Um, now, obviously, that didn't include the rushing statistics, um, but I, I think that uh, there there's a chance that he can have somewhere in that range of a 2019 book season. But I'm but I don't think it'll be as good as Brady Quinn was in 2006 either. Uh, next one is from at CB Wonder 81. Who will get more playing time this year between Lorenzo Styles and Xavier Watts? I hear more about Styles than I do Watts right now. If you say it really fast, it sounds like Stevie Wonder 81. Um, <laughs> I think Lorenzo Styles is going to get more playing time than Xavier Watts. And I think the reason is because Lorenzo has been healthy both in the spring and during fall camp, and he's been able to show himself and his skills more. I think Xavier Watts is really good, but he was kind of rolled back in the spring, and then we get to fall camp and was banged up a little bit. So I don't think we've been able to see the true Xavier Watts. And when you're trying to, you know, nudge your way up the depth chart, it's hard if you're not on the field to be able to show people what you can do. So for me, and I think, honestly, I think Styles is the better player. Yeah, I, I think there's a reason that CB Wonder hasn't heard as much about Xavier Watts is just because there hasn't been as much to report about what he's done. He doesn't get much mention from Brian Kelly and we haven't seen him make many plays in practice. I think he's been slowed a little bit by injuries and uh, Lorenzo styles has looked good in some of the chances we got to see him is particularly the last full practice that we got to see in, the, in Notre Dame stadium. Um, he had a pretty good practice that day. So I think he will end up getting more playing time this season. Next question is from at Clutch Sports ND. It sounds like the younger receivers have impressed during fall camp. How much do you think they will contribute, and will they compete in more than four games, therefore losing the redshirt year? Well, there's three freshmen there. Uh, we just mentioned Lorenzo Styles. There's Deion Colsey, and there's Jaden Thomas. In what we've seen in practice, I can't have Colsey and Styles won't play more than four games. I just think they're going to be too good. Now they're not going to be starters, but I just think they're too good in their skill sets to keep off the field. Colsey is six, five and really uses his body well. And he catches passes at, at different places on the field. I just really like him. And, and styles to me really rating when he moved from slot receiver, which he can still play, 
to the outside receiver. I thought, especially in the red zone, he was really effective there. And a lot of times when Notre Dame's made that move, like when Lawrence Keyes has had to start outside because of an injury or Chris Fink, it hasn't been as effective. But for Styles, boy, that seemed to energize him. So guys rotate in. They're not going to be staples. They're really counting on those four seniors and the grad senior. But those guys are going to play. Yeah, I'm not as sold on that. And I think part of it has – and I'm not sure that the coaching staff has sort of made that decision in their heads yet. And I think it's partially because they need they really need to see what they're going to get from those older guys this season. Um, now, obviously, if, if some of the injury issues pop up, I don't think they're going to be afraid to play Lorenzo Styles or, or Deion Colsey. But I, I think that they're probably going to be careful with, with sort of burning their usage in early games to see if they can get away with redshirting them if they can. Now, if Styles becomes a special teams player and they find a way to get him involved in maybe some return situations, then maybe that, that goes out the window. I think Deion Colsey could find a role in the red zone. So it wouldn't surprise me if they didn't redshirt, but I think, I think there's still a possibility that they do. So I'm not, I'm not totally sold on the fact that they're going to get enough playing time to make it worth um, throwing out their redshirt year. Next question is from Joe Esquire at Sad Irish Fan 13. What secondary do you guys think will be the biggest challenge for Notre Dame's receiver and tight end group this year? I'm going to say Cincinnati. They have a really outstanding corner and Ahmad Gardner who's been really outstanding since he's been a freshman. And I think that, you know, Cincinnati will be able to get enough pressure up front to help. Uh, you know, I like Wisconsin's front seven. I'm not sure if I'm crazy about their secondary. I, I guess those are the two that kind of jump out at me that, that have impressed me. North Carolina has, I think, 10 starters back on defense. They weren't a good defensive team, and they lost a really good linebacker, the one player they did lose in Surratt. Uh, so I'm not sure how good North Carolina is going to be. So, again, I'll go back to Cincinnati and maybe Wisconsin. Yeah, I, I think North Carolina is going to have a pretty good secondary um, with some young guys uh, that they really – like and have a lot of uh, confidence in, but I, I do think it's Cincinnati is the best secondary that that Notre Dame's going to play um, because, I, and I'm not sure that it's particularly close. Ahmad Gardner is the best cornerback they'll face this year, and Kobe Bryant plays opposite of him, and he's pretty solid. They did lose their safeties to the NFL in the offseason, um, but the guys that they have replacing them have some experience as well, so I think they're going to be pretty confident. Com competent back there. So that's, I mean, that's sort of correlated to my concern about Notre Dame's cornerbacks. Um, I think a lot of the things Marcus Freeman could do with Cincinnati's defense was based on the talent of that secondary and obviously a lot of their front seven too. Um, and so that uh, I, even though that they lost their safeties, their cornerbacks will still be pretty good for, for Cincinnati this year. Next question is from Cheryl Russo at Cheryl R. Bunch of Numbers. Do you think Notre Dame can run the ball against FSU? Well, FSU was 97th in the country last year in run defense. They're one of the worst run defense teams Notre Dame will play this year. Now, I expect them to be better. They 
still been able to recruit. They just haven't had cohesion. They have it, it just seems like the program was very unstable earlier. He feels like things have stabilized. So I don't expect them to be, you know, 97th in the country. And and Notre Dame doesn't have the offensive line they had last year. But yeah, I do expect Notre Dame to run the ball against Florida State effectively. Yeah, I agree. Notre Dame rushed for 353 yards against Florida State last year. Um, I'm not sure that they're going to reach that number this year, but um, I think Florida State's defensive line is going to be better as pass rushers, um, but I'm not as sold on them being better against the run um, up front with their with their defensive line and linebackers. So I think Notre Dame is going to be able to run the ball, and if they're not, then uh, that could make an interesting situation for Notre Dame down in, in Tallahassee. Next question is an email from Ken in Pensacola. How is the kicking portion of this year's team shaping up? Field goals, kickoff, extra points, et cetera. Well, right now, all those are Jonathan Doerr. I did ask Brian Kelly the other night if the freshman Josh Bryan, who they've been impressed with, might work his way into kickoffs, and, and they're sold on Jonathan Doerr. Uh, he's had a good fall camp. You know, he talked with the media the other day and, uh, you know, Brian Polian did as well, the special teams coordinator. And he mentioned that they kind of burnt Jonathan out a little bit mentally and physically in part just kind of dodging the effects of COVID-19 and and how that wore on on some of the specialists. And it, and again, we've seen a pretty consistent Jonathan door. I guess the really good news is Josh Bryan looks pretty good in um, practice. So they have a plan B in case there was an injury and, and Harrison Leonard's been around for a while and he looks solid too. So I think they're in a pretty good position uh, with all those kicking questions. Yeah. Yeah. They're going to, they're going to lean on Jonathan door to return to his 2019 form. Um, But I think there is more confidence in Josh Bryan. Um, that if 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 things go sideways with Jonathan Doerr, I don't know that they would be afraid to put Josh Bryan in there if they needed to. He's had a good preseason. The last time I saw them kick field goals in practice, um, Josh Bryan made four of five, and Jonathan Doerr made three of five. Um, they both missed like a 33-yard field goal. Um, and they both actually hit, hit 52-yard field goals, but Josh Bryan's hit off the crossbar and in where Jonathan Doors was like halfway up the net. So Jonathan Doors' leg strength is definitely greater than um, Josh Bryan's, but it's the accuracy that he needs to focus in on. And uh, if he can do that, I think Notre Dame is going to be pretty content with keeping him out there all season. Next one is from at Buster Biven. Who will Notre Dame starting free safety be in 2022? That's tough. Um, I played with a little bit of – options here you dj brown not um consideration the covid year still has a potential fifth year i thought about justin walters might be an ascending player ascending enough that that gets him in the mix and, and dj brown can play either of those safety positions and i'm going to go way out on a limb just to be fun today. And I'm going to go with Xavier Nwamka, the uh, five-star safety from Iowa, whom Notre Dame is competing with Ohio State to try to 
sign in November. I think he's going to end up in Notre Dame's class. Again, this isn't based on reporting. This is based on guessing. Um, yeah. Um, not on a, a big limb there, but I I think class, he's got a chance to start. He's He is not Kyle Hamilton, but he is certainly in the same conversation as Kyle Hamilton as a young player. I think uh, we may need to get you tested, and I don't think we're talking about a COVID test after that answer. <laughs> but uh, I think uh, the the thing I'm positive about is it won't be Kyle Hamilton. <laughs> um, it I think most likely will be DJ Brown returning for a fifth year. Um, I really do like Justin Walters a lot um, from what I've seen with him, from him as a freshman. Um, so he would be the dark horse um, if for some reason DJ Brown didn't return um, or they felt more confident doing something different than that. So I, I, I think those are probably the most likely answers. I know that's not as sexy as predicting Xavier Nwamka, <laughs> uh, but that is very sexy. <laughs> that's that. That's the, that's my guess for what will happen next year, but we'll, we'll see a lot could happen between now and then. Last question we have is from at Chris Fleck one, who should be the next big concert at Notre Dame stadium? And why is it you too? Um, I didn't have a strong opinion about this. I have gone to a concert and I it was a Garth Brooks concert and I had an incredible seats and I was the coldest I've ever been in my life. And he, <laughs> he, he pledged before there was a uh, pandemic. The thought was that he, the stadium tour he was doing, he was going to start it in Notre Dame stadium in a cold October day and come back to Notre Dame stadium to kind of finish in a warmer climate. Uh, so, I mean, Garth Brooks is, you could put Bon Jovi, but my vote would be, for the Rolling Stones. I know Charlie Watts just passed away their drummer at age 80. Uh, they're going on with their tour without him, uh, the current tour. And I want to see such an iconic group in Notre Dame Stadium. Yeah, I think, I mean, that would certainly stick with the theme. Um, the theme so far has been country or old guy music with Garth Brooks, Billy Joel, and George Strait. Um, obviously the Billy Joel and George Strait concerts didn't end up happening yet, um, due to COVID, but, um, I think U2 certainly would qualify as old guy music and there's the Irish connection there. U2 was never really my jam. So I don't know that would be something I would be pulling for. Um, I, I would like to see them change it up, um, in terms of genres or, or ages. <laughs> um, and obviously I got to throw Taylor Swift out there. I mean, her brother went to Notre Dame, so why not, uh, bring Taylor Swift to, to Notre Dame stadium for a concert. Can she fill a stadium? What? Are you kidding me? She can fill three stadiums. I am just kidding. <laughs> All right. That's it for today's episode of pot of gold. If you don't already, you can subscribe to us on Apple podcasts, Spotify, Google podcasts, and Stitcher. If you like what you hear, shoot us some stars and leave a review. We'll be back next week to preview Notre Dame season opener at Florida State. Until then, stick with ndinsider.com for all your Notre Dame football coverage needs.